Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And we are wrapping up our month of anthology movies this week. This has been a lot of fun. Oh gosh, yes. And we've really gotten some really positive feedback. In fact, we got you know, one guy saying, hey, why don't you go ahead and do two months? (laughs) (laughs) We could easily, right? (laughs) We really could, you know, because we kind of picked early what we wanted to do and you changed your mind a time or two. But yeah, I mean, throughout the month, I've just kind of been thinking about all these other ones we could do. I don't know that we'll necessarily jump into uh, another month right away, but we will keep doing these anthology films because we, we love them. And who knows, maybe maybe someday we'll get a, another month. But we're wrapping up this month with a choice that I made, and that is Tales from the Dark Side, the movie from 1990. And I picked this movie just because I remembered it fondly. Yeah. Honestly, is a coincidence only in so much as I didn't realize. You know, we started out with Tales from the Crypt, and Tales from the Crypt was really the inspiration for... Creepshow. Creepshow. Uh, and we did Creepshow 2 at my behest, And I didn't realize that really this movie, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, is basically the spiritual Creepshow 3. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I didn't either. Um, But Romero and, help me out, the the effects guy, Savini, Mm -hmm. wanted to do a third movie, but then they kind of got sidetracked a little bit and thought, you know, let's, how about if we do a TV anthology. And for whatever reason, I don't remember if it was copyright or, or some other obstacle that they wanted to avoid, they, they weren't going to be able to use the Creepshow title, so they just decided to go with Tales from the Dark Side. And they did create a television series uh, out of it. And so really, Romero and Savini both really say that this really is Creepshow 3, just under a different title. I suppose I'm not really surprised. Uh, They do have a lot of similarities, similar in tone. I have no idea how long it's been since I had seen this movie. Uh, A long time. But I remembered it pretty well, and I remembered it fondly, and I was happy to revisit it, and I was not disappointed. I I thought this was fun. I thought this was a really fun movie. (laughs) It is fun. I had good memories of it, too. Uh, When I was a kid, especially in 90, I'm sure, is when I saw it, 1990. Especially two of the stories in here. Well, all three of them have stuck in my mind. One of the stories when I was a kid I felt was just really, really tragic and sad. Uh, And Uh it kind of very emotionally stuck with me for a while. And I remembered it being full of stars. I remembered it being lots of fun. And I also remember the TV series, Tales from the Dark Mm -hmm. Side, which always seemed a little, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of the adjective to use, a little mysterious to me as a kid. Because... George Romero created it in 1983, and it almost immediately entered syndication. So there were multiple networks showing this, Mm -hmm. but they would show it super late at night, after midnight, on every one of these networks that showed it would, would play it after midnight. It wasn't heavily promoted and advertised ever, to my knowledge. I just remember, like, if you stayed up late enough and you happened to be flipping channels you might catch this creepy intro. (laughs) Yeah, I remember it. Man lives 
in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. But there is, unseen by most, an underworld, a place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. A dark side. Just like, just fascinated me. I'm like, this series is an enigma. Where did it come from? You never see ads for it, but it just is on super, super late and no other time. And it has this very low budget feel to it, especially intro. Mm-hmm. It's just like shots of the countryside that then turn negative. Uh-huh. To me, it was just the existence of this show in the way that it existed was creepy enough for me. <laughs> you yeah. know, so, you know, when they made a movie out of it, I was kind of like, whoa, that like this is big enough for a movie. And this was in the theaters and everything. Mm-hmm. I might have even seen it in the theater, actually, uh, now that I think about it. It's interesting, this this one. I have to say um, right off the bat that it's probably not one of my most favorite. Watching it as an adult now, I have a slightly different feeling about it, but I'm so colored by my nostalgia for this movie that I still enjoyed it. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. And only three stories in this, right? That's uh-huh. That's interesting. Yeah. They, I vaguely remember the show, too, and I... I... I didn't watch it that much. I, I remember a, a couple of episodes, and I remember them being kind of dark. Um, yes, very dark. You know, when I when I think of um, you know Creep Show and and even this movie, uh, it's horror for sure, without question. It's horror, and and there are definitely scary and nightmarish elements, but there's also a fair amount of humor. And that's one of the things that I like about this movie is I think that it strikes a really good balance. And apparently the three segments that they used, they tinkered with the order that they presented them in based on reactions from test screenings. Mm. I think that the the order that they came up with worked out well. Um, but the thing that strikes me with this movie, the the show, you're right, it did, I mean, it felt very TV, um, it uh, felt a little bit lower budget, which isn't necessarily a criticism, it just, it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie does not at all. This no. feels like a, a Hollywood movie. Yes. Bolstered by the fact that full of big stars. A lot of these people already well established. It's not like these are people like, oh, they're, I mean, some of them, yes, just kind of getting their big break. Like, for example, this is Julianne Moore's first screen production. It's crazy. I know it is, right? (laughs) But some of them were already pretty well established actors. Well, or other artists. This movie has a wraparound story. It's not framed like a comic like creep show was instead there's you know a standalone wraparound story that starts out right from the very beginning there's some really fun creepy music when they show the title card which it's really brief but i i really liked it it was fun and then it jumps right immediately into this wraparound and it seems like a very quaint i have no idea where it's supposed to be located but it feels very new england type village town um, and you see this woman finishing up some shopping and heading home. And it's Debbie Harry. 
Blondie. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy, yeah. I don't think that I realized when I was a kid watching this, the first movie, who she was. Mm. I liked her, but I don't think that I knew that she was Blondie. Yeah. And, And it's also funny because I don't know if Debbie Harry did really any other acting i mean she she's a rock star but she's really good and uh you know in in her normal rock star life she's she's edgy yeah and in this she's very suburban you know she's driving around like in her jeep cherokee like waving at everybody in town obviously everybody knows her she drives by a church and the priest waves and is like see you in the choir on sunday like, <laughs> <laughs> and she pulls up to her beautiful home she lives in this nice big home with a big beautiful lawn and she walks into her kitchen and right before she walks in you see a doorknob on a door in the kitchen rattling yeah something's going on and she gets in and she takes a phone call from somebody and she's talking about how she's going to have a dinner party tonight and it seems like i think like eight or more people are coming but uh, still you know all very suburban until she hangs up the phone and she opens up that door that was rattling before and it's like a dungeon ca- like <laughs> a <laughs> like cage. a like a medieval du- in the middle of this suburban home is this stone with hay on the ground and chains uh-huh. <laughs> looks like like suddenly somebody took a set from uh you know an Edgar Allan Poe horror movie and just dropped it right <laughs> in cellar there. dweller it's so hilarious yeah <laughs> right and she's got a little boy Timmy chained up in there. Um, Timmy's played by Matthew Lawrence uh, of the famous Lawrence brothers. Um, his older brother Joey was probably more famous at this point, but he, uh, Matthew, had been working in television already too, even at a very young age. And he's super cute. Oh yeah, like just super, super cute and innocent. And basically, you know, it's it's a tale as old as time. She's a witch. She's fattening him up so she can cook him up and eat him. Mm, it's so cute. And she explains, you know, very casually exactly what she's going to do. You know, she she's figuring out recipe times. Like, <laughs> Let's see, how many times is 12 going to 75? Mm, six times, three left over. Why? Well, 12 minutes a pound. That means you have to be in the oven by no later than 1.30. Oh, but evisceration takes at least an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, and she talks about how she's going to cut all his guts out and sew him up. And she's got these huge needles, like, on a stand that she's going to use to eviscerate him and sew him back up again. And she says something about, you know, what'd you do with that book I gave you? Didn't you read it? In order to try to stall her, he says, let me tell you a story. There are really good stories. Because she said, that was my favorite book as a kid, but it's been so long since I've read it, I I barely remember. The book, by the way, is a big leather-bound book with just gold embossing with the, the title Tales from the Dark Side. Yep. And so he uh, decides to tell her a story to try to stall. And that's the wraparound, is him telling her these stories. Um, and he jumps right into the first one, which is called Lot 249, based on a story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which I didn't know before yesterday mm. and haven't read, but I'm very interested to read. And this story stars Christian Slater as Andy, 
Christian Slater at the height of both his youthful success success and his youthful hotness. I mean, for a minute, Christian Slater was so hot. Yeah. <laughs> and it seemed like Christian Slater was in everything for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, after Heathers and all of the Jack Nicholson comparisons, I mean, he was... I mean, he was a hot ticket in Hollywood and probably in his early 20s here, just incredibly handsome and really good. And he plays this college preppy kind of asshole named Andy, and he's got a friend named Lee, played by Robert Sedgwick, who also did lots of TV and stuff. Um, I didn't really recognize him, but he did do, he was around a lot. Mm -hmm. And Lee is really the really preppy asshole. And as it turns out, he's used his wealth and influence to cheat this other guy named Bellingham out of a fellowship. Bellingham is played by a younger Steve Buscemi. Yeah. And what I like most about this segment is that both Christian Slater and Steve Buscemi have this kind of sly wickedness to them yeah. that's really just delicious on screen. Like they play it really well. Yeah, I don't I don't even know how to describe it really, but it's just something in their eyes and their intensity and their performance. They're just really good. And it's it's a fairly simple story. Bellingham knows that he's been cheated, but there's not really anything he can do about it. So he's continuing on with his life, and he shows these two guys, Andy and Lee, that he has ordered um, <laughs> um. an artifact, and, and it's, it's Lot 249, which is a sarcophagus with a mummy inside. And he opens it up and shows them, and uh, <laughs> he ex uh, Lee takes off. He's going to meet with his girlfriend, Susan, who also happens to be Andy's sister. And there's a little subplot about how part of the reason that they had gotten Lee this fellowship was Susan had anonymously accused Bellingham of stealing an artifact from the museum. And while he was wrapped up in that investigation, the whole fellowship thing had happened and he had lost his shot. So Susan and Lee are co-conspirators. Andy, I think, kind of doesn't really know uh, what all has been going on. But after Lee leaves, Bellingham unwraps the mummy and he explains, which is important, how the Egyptians removed all of the organs from the mummies during the mummification process. First thing the embalmers did was to stick a metal hook up his nose and they dragged his brain out through his nostrils. This is where they cut him open so they could pull out all his innards. And then they stuff him with flowers, spices. And I just remember that, like, I was a kid when I saw yeah. this. And I just remember that just feeling so scary and gross. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, because he has explained it, that it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it does. And it's 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 fun. You know, <laughs> this this is one of the two that really stuck with me as a kid, just because of the whole idea. Um, I, I you know I was really fascinated with the ancient civilizations, ancient Greece. So anytime you bring a mummy or some kind of artifact in, I'm going to pay attention. Uh, and then I d didn't know until this movie, this bit of trivia, exactly you know how they removed the organs. I always assumed that you know they just cut them off the head or something. And then he also pans down and explains that they would cut open the abdomen 
and remove the vital organs and then stuff them with aromatic flowers, which he then, <laughs> this mummy, you know, that he's bought and paid for. Who unwraps a mummy, right? Right. But he starts to just completely unwrap this like it's no big deal. It takes the stitches out and is reaching inside the mummy to pull out uh, the stuff in there. And I'm and he pulls out a couple onions that are in surprisingly good shape for being 3,000 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that he pulls out is this scroll. And he looks at the scroll and unrolls it, and his eyes get pretty wide. But he downplays it for uh, uh, Christian Slater's character while he's standing there. And uh, Andy, right? And so yeah. he, he leaves, but... Uh, Steve Buscemi sits there and reads through the scroll and reads it out loud in English, of course. You know, it's I, I was waiting for the rhymes. I guess there weren't any rhymes this time. I, no. <laughs> I love I love these horror movies where they'll like you know read an ancient in, ex- inscription in some ancient language that's not English, but as they're translating it, it turns out to rhyme in English. In English, right? (laughs) (laughs) This wasn't quite that. But, you know, just a couple steps below that in believability is if words of a spell are so important, you would think that they would need to be uttered in the language in which they were conceived or written, and they can't just be translated and read out loud in some other language and still work. (laughs) You know? Why not? (laughs) Look, I'm not going to write and complain about it. I'm just saying. (laughs) As he reads the spell, I believe the mummy's hand comes across the side of the box, the The, sarcophagus that he's in. And and it starts to rise. And so you're kind of left wondering what's going to happen here. In most stories, this guy would be the first one to get it, right? But that's not exactly what happens here. No, it's a revenge tale, and, and it's simple. I mean, it's very simple. You know, he's he's using this mummy as his weapon, I guess, of revenge. And he uh, sicks it on Lee. And the mummy is a guy in a suit. I mean... Yeah, obviously. But it's a, it's a, it's a great suit. It looks good. It, it yeah. looks good. Yeah, it looks good. And I really like the way that it's shot. Like, the mummy goes to... <laughs> Uh, the 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 rich guy's house and the camera is just panning around the house and the mummy is walking around and lee hears it and so like he's like skulking around trying to find it and we just keep cutting the camera keeps cutting around corners and across walls and through walls so you see that they're basically right next to each other there's just always walls separating Mm -hmm. them and i just love the way that's shot it's funny it's fun it's fun and funny yeah it really uh foregoes the normal suspense of creeping around the house is he around the corner and and, you know the jump scares of that for this more I think jokey you know a little more playing with the audience a little more comedic thing like aha you see the mummy's right over there Uh, and and this mummy is very methodical like he comes in and even though he's (laughs) 3,000 years old he knows that there are coat hangers and where the coat hangers are located (laughs) (laughs) goes straight to the closet to get a coat hanger and like you mentioned, you know, I just love this panning scene where it sort of pans by a doorway from inside the room leading out to the hallway. And Lee is skulking around in the hallway, kind of walks past the doorway as it pans over. And the mummy is just very patiently unbending that coat hanger and fashioning yeah. it into a little hook like it's a craft project, you know, that he's uh-huh. doing. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's it's kind of dark in there, but not really. I mean, it, it's it's relatively well lit there there's no hiding of the mummy mm. like you see it 
you know, it, it, there, it's, there's no mystery. It, it's right there, and it looks good. And eventually, I think it kind of sneaks up, not intentionally sneaking, but just walks up behind Lee and, and grabs him and picks him up by the throat and rams that coat hanger up his nose. Yep. And you see blood splurt all over their feet and all over the floor. And that's that's just kind of it. <laughs> and then Susan, Julianne Moore's character, comes comes home. Yeah. And uh, this is another thing that's just embedded in my brain is as she's putting her keys down by uh, on a table by the door, she looks down at their little bowl of fruit and arranged in there with the rest of the fruit is these little piece of his brain. <laughs> just kind of yeah. jellied right there. Uh-huh. Um, and, and she is remarkably calm throughout this entire encounter. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think they're just trying to play her off as this really bitchy gal. And so... Again, it becomes a little comedic, like even though she's facing this utterly unreal spectacle, she's enough of a self-centered, egotistical jerk that she's not that phased by it. <laughs> she's just... <laughs> no, she seems... I mean, she, okay, we've talked about this before because we've seen Julianne Moore in another very early 90s horror movie, and we remarked, or I did, that she is today really a brilliant actress. This is her first movie. I would not call her performance brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's beautiful. But, I mean, she just plays it very aloof. It could be because of that, or it could also have been a, st- a direct stylistic choice by the director. I mean, I think yeah. it, it kind of fits the tone that she's more annoyed and pissed off at this mummy than she is scared by him. Because even when she sees her uh, boyfriend's body on the ground in the blood, she hardly has much reaction to that either. No. Yeah. Well, because I, she didn't really care about him. She's an opportunist. Yeah, that's you my know, point. He's yeah. a, a rich guy, and she was just hooking up with him for that reason or whatever. She doesn't really care. She even sees the mummy walking out. Yeah. Like, it doesn't even really seem all that phased. Yeah. And then eventually the mummy comes for her because she had been involved in this plot to set up Bellingham, so he sticks it on her too. She tries to fight it a little bit, but she ends up getting sliced up her back, and the mummy stuffs her with flowers and somehow that's even a little more cringy than having a hook up your nose i don't know yeah it it was yeah i mean it's gory yeah and andy finds her dead and like wrapped in like 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 an adding machine paper (laughs) ribbon like a (laughs) half-assed mummy (laughs) costume it's funny it is funny. and then i really like this part bellingham the power goes out and bellingham goes to try to fix the fuse and he gets knocked out and he wakes up tied in a chair and andy is there and this is where christian slater is just gleefully wicked like Mm. now he's exacting his revenge and he he's got him tied up and he's dousing him in lighter fluid oh and bellingham wakes up the mummy which i think andy was expecting so he's ready he's got like an electric carving knife and he carves up the mummy with this carving knife which is just really funny Mm -hmm. cuts off the top of its head and sets it in the fire and it seems like he's gonna kill bellingham but like he can't really bring himself to do it so he just demands that bellingham give him the scroll with the text on it And Bellingham doesn't want to, but he's like, okay, it's in the desk. So Andy grabs it, and he burns it up, and then Bellingham is leaving school, and he says something like, bye, and then kind of under his breath as he's walking away, I'll find some way to keep in touch. And it turns out, 
as he's in the taxi cab going away, it wasn't the real scroll. It was a different scroll, and he reads from the real one. Um, and in the very end, the very last thing, Andy's talking to his mom on the phone about coming home soon, and he hangs up the phone, and there's a knock on the door, and it's mummied Lee and Susan, and mm. they just say, like, Bellingham sends his regards or something like that. And they're they're all gross and bloody and um, scary, and it's funny. And then it goes back to the rap super briefly, like mm. just enough time for the kid to say, oh, yeah, that story was over, but I've got another one. Uh, it's about this guy and a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we get into the, the second story, which is The Cat from Hell, which was based on an existing Stephen King short story. I would say of the three, this is probably my least favorite, yeah. but that's not to say that I don't like it. I do like it. This one has almost like a noir kind of feel to it, like a... Super stylized, yeah. Yeah, and I like that. And like, there's some really cool cinematography. The, the premise is this super old guy, Drogan, rich guy. Drogan is played by uh, William Hickey, who we've talked about on this show before. He's this little frail old guy, and he talks like this. Yeah. And that's kind of his calling card. Mm hmm. He's hilarious. I l really enjoy him and everything that he's in. He's in a wheelchair, but he hires this hitman named Halston, plays by, played by David Johansson, who some people might know as Buster Poindexter. He's a, a singer as well. And he was in uh, Scrooge. He was the taxi driver. Yeah, in the taxi driver. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's a you know very straight-laced, hard-nosed hitman in this. Drogan explains to him that he wants to hire him for a hit. $50,000. There'll be another 50000 when you bring me proof that the cat has ended its time on Earth. I don't believe this. You're hiring me to kill a cat? That cat has killed three people in this household. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, a cat? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. but this, is, this is, you know, what a lot of people think of cats turns out to be the case with this cat. It's, 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 a, little, it's a little terror. Drogon is convinced that this cat, um, well, he takes and basically walks him through the story. He had two sisters or a sister and a friend or whatever. One of the sisters is played by Alice Drummond, who I know forever as this frightened librarian in Ghostbusters. Yes. And the cat dispatches both of these ladies. One of them uh, trips her up as she's walking down the stairs and she falls down the stairs and breaks her neck. And uh, the other woman, what happens to the other woman? Uh, it... it um smothers her oh yes he, uh, jumps he, on he her. tells drogan <laughs> drogan tells the the old wives tale about how cats are dangerous to have around elderly people or, or infants because they steal their breath um their breath in their sleep which of course is a wives tale but it it i mean it doesn't the cat doesn't like suck her breath out a la like cat's, cat's eye. eye or something yeah and probably the origin of this myth i would guess is the cat well, this cat like clings itself to oh her gosh. head. It's... I would I would imagine I would imagine that the myth, if you've got infants or elderly people who are incapacitated, 
in theory, a cat could go to sleep on your face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if you have a fat cat like I had growing up, with the minute it leaps on your chest while you're sleeping, it does take your breath yeah. away for sure. <laughs> this this was so silly. Actually, I I often confuse this sequence with uh cat as as being from Cat's Eye, which is another anthology series uh-huh. which Stephen King wrote, and I think it's just because it involves a cat and. This scene of a cat kind of leaping onto someone's chest and trying to steal their breath happens in Cat's Eye, one of the stories in there as well. So I guess I just got the two conflated. But this was originally, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, this was originally supposed to be uh, a fourth story in Creepshow 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just, for budgetary reasons, decided not to do it. So they revived it here. Um, so George Romero scripted this uh, tale. And I think it's... Again, it's so comedic. The whole sequence is really comedic. I mean, the notion that this hitman is hired to kill a cat in this big mansion is goofy. Although it also brought me back shades of, um, what was that one that we did uh, where there was the rat in the house? Um, Oh, I won't be able to think of the name of it, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. The intruder? And the guy basically has to... Maybe intruder. I don't know, but the guy basically has to destroy his whole building to like try to get this rat. <laughs> right. I, I I was getting flashbacks of that. Was it? But but it's so silly. A the concept is silly, and B ugh, this scene when she leaps onto this woman's face, <laughs> mm-hmm. and this cat is just literally wrapped around her face as she sits up and screams and is like flailing around this cat. You know, it's just. I mean, it's obviously like a fake cat on her face, but it's oh, just, yeah. it just looks cartoonish, which fits the style of the whole segment, right? It does, but and it is silly, and I that's that's fine. I, I like humor. Yeah, yeah. It's... In my horror, but I think that part of what makes it silly is that it's played straight. Everybody plays this straight um, in this segment. Like you said before, it's really stylized in terms of the cinematography. Like there's, there's one scene, just a few frames near the very beginning when Halston is coming in and Drogon is sitting in his wheelchair in front of this fire. And it's this big cavernous room. Everything is in shades of gray and black except for Halston, very small right in the middle, and he's got like this red blanket over his lap, and he's illuminated by the fire. And so it's just this one pop of color right in the middle. And it, I just, I was looking at him like, dang, that looks great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it just looks so good. It's kind of Sinicid Kane in a way, yeah. Yeah, and, and they do cool stuff with... Um, like, there's a cat POV that's mostly black and white with kind of some, like, violet around, circling around the outer frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the flashbacks are in interesting dreamlike colors. All of a sudden, it's not natural-looking color. It's kind of dreamlike. And I like, you know, and it kills the two women. And then Drogon tells their butler... Another guy, if you watched any, if you've watched any movies ever, you've seen this guy. Yeah, uh, that's right. In something, because he's been in everything. Mm-hmm. What's his name? I can't remember. Ga- uh, Mark, Mark Margolis. Margolis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's in everything. Super recognizable. My God, you've seen it. He's been. He's still working. I mean, he's been working for decades. But uh, he t- he tells him to take the cat to a vet, either to have it caged up or put down it's not really clear but the cat causes a big car accident and gage is killed and that's why 
um, Drogon is convinced that it's coming after him next. And so Drogon leaves. Oh, and he explains the cat's motive. Mm. It, Drogon made his fortune in pharmaceuticals. And they developed this one sketchy drug that's like part painkiller, part hallucinogen, part amphetamine or something. I don't know. And Drogon's popping these pills all the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the process of developing this drug, they tested it on cats and they killed like 5,000 cats or something. So he thinks that this cat is here to exact <laughs> its revenge for its people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a representative from the cat world coming over. <laughs> so funny. Uh, and then there's probably five minutes, five to ten minutes of Halston kind of hunting this cat sort around. Of. He's more wandering around the house, pouring himself a drink yeah. and stuff, and then the cat will just jump out of nowhere and scratch his face. And, right, you know, because <laughs> initially he thinks it's dumb. Like, he thinks the whole job is dumb, but he's more than happy to do it because the guy's going to... He, he's already handed him 50000 and he tells him that uh, when it's done, if, if he can... If if Halston can give him the cat's tail as proof that it's dead, he'll give him another fifty thousand. So he's like, "Fine, I can kill a cat for a hundred grand, whatever." Mm -hmm. But the cat keeps evading him and attacking him, uh, and each time it attacks, it uh, causes quite a bit of damage. So by the end, he's bloodied, and I mean, it's he's got scratches on his face and on the back of his neck, and all over it looks terrible and eventually the cat always kills at midnight so we know that when midnight comes he's in trouble mm. the clock uh strikes midnight and the cat rises up at the top of the clock i loved it it, it, it <laughs> very it, it reminded me of um edgar Allan poe's the black cat oh, yeah. like who what is this freaking cat <laughs> why is it always in the wrong place and it jumps down off the uh clock onto his face and in a great special effects moment works its way into his mouth down his throat and into his abdomen yes <laughs> it's stupid it is and it really, looks fantastic it is stupid but yeah it's fantastic so then um uh, Hinkley's character comes home Drogon comes home wheels himself in and sees this guy on the on the floor out of his mouth comes clawing back out the cat who then jumps on his lap and Drogon knocks Drogon's pills out of his hand so he can't pop his pills anymore <laughs> Uh, you know, in my mind, I just remembered the sequence differently. I remembered this going down the guy's throat. The old guy? Yeah, I totally did. I was waiting for it to happen, and, it, you know, it didn't. I didn't remember exactly what happened at the end, but then when it happened, I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's that's right. It, it, it doesn't have to do anything to him. Yeah. It, 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 it scares him to death. He uh, he has a heart attack and he dies. And you know, and that's it. And that's that's also like I think it's kind of neat, except for of course the guy with the cat kind of crawling into his down his throat and out his mouth. Each of these other desks were like accidental, right? They could be explained away by his paranoia, right. right? He thinks it's the cat, but he wasn't there to witness either of these things happen. Just one woman ended up kind of like dying and they said it was natural causes, but he knows it's the cat. The other one falls down the stairs and he just knows it was the cat that tripped him up. And then he gets up getting dispatched by dropping his pills, you know, and he can't get to them. Yeah. And uh, that is going to be easily explained away by the cops when they show up, except for this guy with this jaw that must be completely unhinged. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> It's a weird story, but it 
it does work, but it's total comedy, I think. Uh, there's Again, I, I don't really, just like the first story, I can't say I was really scared. No. There's there's not a lot of suspense and, and drama here. It's just kind of fun and interesting to watch. Uh, you can also predict yeah. what's going to happen with both of these stories. You know, I mean, the minute the minute in the mummy story that the hooks explained and the flowers explained, you know, I go, all right, all right well, we know what's going to happen there. I think the only surprise there was when Christian Slater's character gets the better of him. Yeah. That's a bit of a surprise, but it's not, like, scary. Yeah, what I like about this story is how simple it is. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it, it just feels like good storytelling. Um, of course, it's going to be no surprise to you or to our listeners. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. But Stephen King says that he continues to write short stories because he feels like it keeps him sharper as a writer. Mm. It forces him to be more... Condensed. <laughs> condensed and succinct. And and it's true. You know, I, I, I do love Stephen King's novels, but he can draw things out over the yeah. course of a novel. Literary elephantism, I think, is what he says he suffers from. <laughs> well, and, and it's fine. I mean, his characters are engaging. I mean, there are some times when I've read from his books, I'm like, oh, okay, come on. <laughs> is something else going to happen? Oh. But... I still enjoy his novels, but really, I love his short story anthologies. He's good, really he good is. at telling a, a complete story in a condensed um, space. And this feels like a good short story. This this feels yes. like a story that would get told at a slumber party. It does. And could you imagine if this story were had ended up in Creepshow 2, it really would have totally changed the movie. I mean, Creepshow 2, for the most part, there's not a lot of humor in it, right? I mean, the three stories are fairly dark. Mm -hmm. And this one is, like I said, I, I, it's really comedic. It's really kind of silly. And so there wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. It just would have been different. Ooh, right. I Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it works well here. like, And I think that it works well here in the middle. For whatever reason, I don't know. But it cuts back then to... The wraparound again, and um, Betty is going to allow uh, Timmy to tell one last story because he promises her it's going to be a love story, because love stories are her favorite. This last story is called Lover's Vow, and this one, and I think based on what you've already said, you're going to probably yeah. agree with me, that this is the one that always stuck with me. Yeah. And still today, I really, really like it. It may have something to do with the fact that it's based on an actual legend, a Japanese folklore legend. Yukiona. It takes the the basics of that story, but changes it up too. Um, so it's it's not exactly the traditional story, but it's the same premise. <sighs> and gosh, you already said it, and I agree. It feels almost ironic to say, but there's almost something beautiful about this story. Yeah. And it does feel tragic at the end. It and it, it is frightening. And something else that I the the images of this scene are are seared into my mind there there are creature effects that probably technically aren't that amazing but they look so good they like, really I just, do i just love it oh man all right you do you want you start this one 
Well, uh, I mean, this, again, also a very simple story that's drawn out a little bit, but it's, it's very interesting. There's a guy named Preston, and he is uh, living in sort of a studio apartment in New York. Uh, I think it's New York. It seems like it. Yeah. He's got a skylight above his studio, and there's an interesting shot in the beginning where you see this gargoyle just sitting um, on the top of his building, but it can kind of peer down um, into... Not peer down, but just kind of like pans across the gargoyle and you can see uh, down in the skylight he's working on this stuff. And uh, his agent calls him and uh, asks him to meet him at a bar. And so he goes and meets him at this bar a little walk away. He's like, oh, tell me how much money I'm making now. Like, you know, are you going to give me a big pot of cash? And the agent says, no, actually, I'm, I'm here to tell you that the gallery can't sell any of your stuff and they want to return it all to you. Um, and he's just completely dejected, and so he just starts drinking a ton. You get the sense that he's at this bar a lot. It's this tiny little dive bar. There's nobody in there, um, but you get the sense that the bartender's like his friend, uh, mm-hmm. and he's a regular there. So they walk out the side. Uh, they're the last two. Well, they're like the last two to leave, but then there's another guy who's just slumped over the bar uh, sleeping, yeah. and I guess... They're just going to lock him in there. <laughs> yeah. The, the bartender says, I'll let him out in the morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's great. But he comes out the side entrance, which leads into an alley. And uh, while he's chaining the door, um, Preston kind of walks a little bit further down the alley. And then his friend, uh, the bartender, hears a noise. And uh, he kind of goes back to investigate a little bit. And suddenly you see something swipes and his hand falls off, mm-hmm. and something swipes again, and his head comes off. <laughs> like, something just completely massacred this guy. And uh, Preston runs over and uh, sees this happen, and he starts to run away, but the creature kind of gets him up against the wall. And he begs for his life, and the creature, like you said, is it looks great. It's this great gargoyle face that's, like, grinning very, yeah. very... Toothy. Gaping mouth. Mm-hmm. Oh. And very it's, articulate. It's, it's winged. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very very articulated. And he starts talking. Please, please don't. You arrived in exchange for a promise. You got it. If I let you go, you must swear you'll never see you saw me. Never see you on the Never tell anyone how I look. Never repeat what I have said. A promise forever. You gotta be kidding. I, I promise. When it starts speaking, like <laughs> that, that shocked me. <laughs> like, yeah. All of a sudden, it's just talking in English. Your life in exchange for a promise. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's such a cool. Poetic, like yeah it is poetic like i'll let you live but you have to keep this one promise and it's really a fairly simple promise just don't say anything you know never never tell never tell anybody it's like a fairy tale right it's like an aesop's fable or whatever just in in a modern day urban legend type context and that's probably why it works so well I, Mm -hmm. i mean just immediately after the monster flies away he leaves the alley, and there's a woman suddenly walking down the street. And he pulls her aside and says, "You can't, what are you doing here by yourself? You can't be here by yourself. She's like, well, I'm just trying to go home, but I lost my way. He says, no, this neighborhood is dangerous. Um, let me take you to my place, and you can call a cab from there. You, you'll never get a cab here. <laughs> and she's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it seems a little... 
shady. Like, because he... He gr- now I get it. I understand that he knows that there's this dangerous thing, and he's trying to protect her. But the way that he grabs her and throws her up against the wall and covers up her mouth—I mean, how would you not find that threatening? But he convinces her that he's just trying to help out, and apparently she believes him. The um, Preston is played by James Remar, who again has been in a million things. I remember him from Sex in the City. He was one of Kim Cattrall's love interests on Sex oh. in the City. <laughs> okay. Uh, very, very handsome and rich and debonair in that movie, Naked. Um, oh. Or that show, I mean, excuse me. But uh, the woman, whose name ends up being Kerala, is played by Radon Chong. And in the mid to late 80s, Radon Chong was poised to be a huge star yeah and uh i'm not really sure what happened uh what i know is when steven spielberg made the color purple radon chong was cast in it and she was originally poised even though she plays a very small character she was poised to be among the top build just because she was this rising star and um she looks in in this movie she's gorgeous she's young she's gorgeous this you know a beautiful black woman um just absolutely gorgeous and she goes to his apartment with him he says come to my apartment uh and you can call a cab from there but when they get there he first dials the police but when the police answer he doesn't say anything and um he says something to her like, did you want to try to call a cab again? And she just doesn't answer. And so he goes to the bathroom and is like, he takes his shirt off. The demon monster gargoyle. The very last thing it said to him was, after cross he promised, she said, cross your heart. And yeah. uh, scratched him across his chest. So he's got these big gashes across his chest. And she walks up behind him and she's like, what happened? And he said, oh, I was on the wrong end of a bottle of scotch or something like that. So he doesn't say anything. And she cleans up his wounds. And then 10 minutes after they meet, they bone. <laughs> exactly. They fall in love very quickly. <laughs> they do. They fall in love very quickly. But, you know, it's it's a fairy tale. So, yeah. you know, that's okay. So, in the meantime, he's really haunted by this vision. And he's an right. artist. And so, uh, you know, he expresses himself. He, he he gets out a piece of paper and is, is constantly, like, painting or drawing this creature. But he always hides the the drawings when she comes into the room. Mm-hmm. Or anybody comes in, really, so that, mm-hmm. you know, he will not break his vow. And uh, then it fast forwards to 10 years later. Well, she said, before that, she says that she was talking to, well, she moves in with him the next day. Oh, yeah. Then she says, you know, I've got a friend, actually, it's kind of a friend of a friend who, like, has a gallery or something, and they're, in, I told them about you and they're interested and he's like what's what's their name and and she's like well the first name's like this but i don't really remember the rest and he recognizes the name and apparently it's this hot gallery owner who has like the you know the hippest gallery or whatever and she happens to know him <laughs> yeah and so they do a showing and he's immediately successful making tons of money and then they cut to 10 years later that's right. They cut to 10 years later, and they have two little kids, two little uh-huh. girls, or boy and a girl. I can't remember. And a great life, apparently. You Wonderful. Know, incredibly they, successful. 
they madly love in love mm-hmm. mad te- even 10 years later still madly in love <laughs> and uh, they're celebrating their anniversary and uh, they go out and they have dinner and stuff and he comes back home and he says to her you know I, it's just so sweet right uh He's like, oh, I just wanted to give you something better than, you know, what, what we had now. And she said, there's nothing that, that you can give me that I don't already have. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, actually, there is. He pulls out a sculpture. He gives her a very detailed miniature sculpture of the demon. And he tells her the story. And she sits there and listens to it. And She's almost shaking. Yeah. Her face is blank, and and he tells her the whole story, and she gets up, and she's holding the thing, the the sculpture, and she starts to cry, Yeah. and then she says, you promised you'd never tell. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's so good. Oh, I just love it so much. And then, like, her arms sort of split open at the elbows, and out come these things and these wings start to unfurl and her face splits open and she basically transforms back into that gargoyle Mm -hmm. and the he looks over in the other room and his kids (laughs) start to walk out and they're now gargoyle kids too and they're so cute and sad cute Cute oh my god they're adorable, but they look—they look so sad, and they're like clinging to each other, like they're scared. And I just—I loved this part because he's—he's he's crying too, and he's begging. He's begging, please go back, please. I'm so sorry. I love you. Yeah, I, I love you. And uh, she says, "I can't. You broke your vow." And she she pulls him into this embrace, like she wraps her arms and her wings around him. And he says, "I loved you." And she says, "I loved you too, but you broke your vow, and yeah. now this is our fate." And she bites his throat out, like a kiss almost, you know, but uh-huh. th- ripping his throat out. Oh. And what's so tragic about this is not like. Obviously, the, it's frightening, but it's not even so much that he's scared. He's just devastated. Like, they're, yeah. they're all devastated, and it is devastating. And the, you know, the last thing that you see is she grabs her little gargoyle kids, and they fly out through the uh, skylight, and she resumes her position where she was overlooking his apartment before, but now she's got her two little gargoyle babies like huddled up next to her, and they turn back to stone, and that's it. God, I love that story. It's It's such a good good story. When I was a kid, it shocked me. I mean, it surprised me. Like, I didn't expect this woman to be the gargoyle. Maybe because I've seen it before and I knew I was going to end up, I thought... It was kind of projected a little bit. I felt the same way this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, she shows up right afterwards, and then... uh, And when I was a kid, my interpretation of this story was not that she was the gargoyle all along. My interpretation of the story was just that, you know, she was just a a, a woman, but because he broke the vow, this is how how the punishment was meted out. You know, the, the gargoyle destroyed her, and then, you know... No, you will. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I think she's literally the gargoyle because now I picked up on all those other things, like the gargoyle looking down from the top, and that's the thing. Like I I think that I think this time watching it, that's the first time I thought of it in that way. Like she had been 
perched above his apartment mm-hmm. watching him mm-hmm. through the skylight and she, you know she like knows falling he's an in love artist. with him really i think she fell in love with him mm-hmm. it does beg the question though how did this gargoyle know this super famous um uh, gallery owner in town <laughs> no she's magic i don't know <laughs> <laughs> just magic <laughs> Oh, it's God, tragic. That's, though. It's my favorite. It does feel tragic. It, it 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 feels sad. I mean, it is frightening, and and the effects are great. It looks fantastic, um, but the overall feeling that I was left with was was sadness. Like God, that's sad. I mean, especially yeah. with the little kids, and they're so cute. And, mm-hmm. Oh, how devastating! And and when he he when he turns and sees his kids, he falls to the floor and he's weeping and reaching for them and. Mm. just horrible so then it cuts back to the rap and Betty is getting clearly frazzled at this point and she's ready to go (laughs) (laughs) she's ready to cook him and he's like wait uh, I'm going to tell you the best story of all and she's like well you should have already told me because it's too late now then he starts telling his story and he's like it's a story uh, about a little boy named Timmy and you see Timmy's older brother had the stupid paper and one day Timmy's older brother got sick Timmy had to go around collecting Timmy went to this one house. This lady ran to the door. She said, come on in. So when he went inside, she tricked him. And she threw him into a pantry. She made him eat cookies all day long. Because she wanted him to get fat. Because she was going to kill him and cook him and eat him. This is your story. And you can stop telling it now because we both know how it comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, yeah, but then what, what the witch didn't know was that Timmy had these marbles in his pocket. And he's narrating all of this as it's happening. As he's doing it, yeah. And the stupid witch is not paying attention. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's great. And so he says, and so and so he threw the marbles on the ground, and she didn't see, and um, she stepped on them, and she slipped and fell. And so she does, and she falls right directly back onto those protruding giant needles that she has on her cart. Mm-hmm. And she jumps up and is trying, like, <laughs> trying to get the needles out of her back, and... He gets her keys and unlocks himself and shoves her onto the huge... This giant oven tray <laughs> rolls out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it's it. Hansel and Gretel. I mean, yeah, totally. Just Hansel, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's it's adorable. And he pushes her in there. And then he just walks over. And she's screaming and burning up. And he walks over to the counter and grabs a... A package of chocolate chip cookies and pulls one out and stops eat starts eating it and then looks directly into the camera and with a big smile on his face says, "Don't you just love happy endings?" <laughs> <laughs> and the music starts and the credits roll. I just think this movie is so much fun. Like it is fun. Oh, I just had it such a fun. good time watching it. It, it. I was never scared. Correct. But there were scary elements. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was probably more scared by it when I was a kid. I think I remember actually finding the cat one pretty scary when I was a kid. Mm. Um, not so much now, but but entertaining. And every story I thought was an engaging story. The acting is great. Yeah. It's really nice to look at. I mean, I just feel like it's very well done. We didn't even talk... The director is John Harrison, who uh, did a lot of production, but this is one of the few movies I think that he directed himself. He worked on Creepshow 2, I think. I think he also composed the music for Creepshow 2, am I right? I don't remember. Yeah, and Dawn, and Day of the Dead, I think. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He worked on that too, I think. 
and, and so he, you know, he and Romero were, uh, you know, co-workers and, and whatnot. I, I think it was a modest success, but critically, it, it was pretty mixed reviews. I think maybe a lot of people felt, felt it was a little silly. Maybe they were a little too heavy on the comedy and also thought that the stories were a little pedestrian and predictable. I think that's fair criticism, but just tonally, the movie is not the same. As actually, I would say it's a lot closer to the original Creep Show than it is to Creep Show Two. Uh, the original Creep Show is goofy and has a lot of humor in it. Uh, Creep Show Two is fairly serious and tries to be a little more dark. This movie was definitely going back to the other way and just just goofy. I mean, the wraparound story is silly. The mummy story has is is just it's not shot like we said in a very suspenseful way. No. And then of course the cat movie. I just think the cat story is baffling, but it's just goofy. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 they're good to end on that third one, I think, you know, which yeah. is really a tearjerker. I don't know how you come back from that. You just got to end your movie after that. Yeah, and that's yeah. exactly what they do, you know. But again, it is predictable. Like, you've got a, at least a 50% chance of figuring it out almost as soon as she appears <laughs> on the screen. Yeah. So that's that's a bit of a flaw. I was surprised to read in the trivia in IMDb that... George Romero uh, on the commentary track, and I think one of the the producer, or, or no, it was the director, said that they got some pushback on casting a black woman to right. be a romantic interest with this guy. And this was 1990. Was 90. Uh-huh. I cannot believe that. I I don't even, I don't remember that being a thing <laughs> like in the 90s. But I mean, who knows what kind of conversations happen up the chain that we're never privy to. But yeah, they had some pressure to include some reason (laughs) why there would be this interracial, you know, love affair. And George Romero has always been on the right side of this sort of thing. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, no, fuck you. You know, (laughs) you don't need to do it. It's just so stupid. Right. Even as a kid, that never even crossed my mind. (laughs) You know, like they were just two sexy people. Like, why wouldn't they? I I was in love with her as a kid. I thought she she was gorgeous. gorgeous. I mean, to me, half the half of the tragedy was, you know, yeah, they had this great life. But man, you bagged a nice one. You know, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I forgot about that. I read that too, and it really shocked me too. I was like, "Really? In 1990? That's so bizarre." But really, I mean, I guess it just goes to show that we've come a long way. So uh, that's that's good, I guess. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I guess there was a sequel plan too that never made it, that never happened, and they keep talking about rebooting the the Tales from the Dark Side series, but I don't think that's ever happened either. Has it? Well, see, and no, it. Well, they did. They rebooted it in uh, the late '90s, I think, and it ran for a little while. And and this oh. guy, the the director here, Harrison, directed a couple episodes of it. I think I'm pretty sure. I feel like it may have kind of fallen to the wayside at this point because Creepshow has its own series on Shutter now, right? Which I think these guys are involved in, right? They are. Mm -hmm. And Harrison has directed a few episodes of that, too, I think. Um, So unless it was picked up by a different streaming service or or a different network or something, it seems like it would almost be a little bit redundant. You know, they're so similar. Yeah. But I don't know, whatever. I I could make room for both. But yes, the people who were involved in this and who were involved in the Creepshow movies are now involved, at least in some capacity, with the show, which I need to get more into. I've watched a couple of episodes and I liked them, but I just haven't really gotten around to it but anyway um it's been you know a lot of fun talking about these movies this month i i kind of feel bad todd has been wanting to do this 
probably for years at this point. And we, just <laughs> never, we just never got around to it. And uh, I'm glad that we finally did. It's been a lot of fun. Mm. And uh, like I said before, theme month or not, uh, these anthology films will continue to pop up. And we've already done a bunch of them. So oh, yeah. uh, if you haven't listened to some of those past episodes uh, and you like this format, you can go back and check some of those out. And if you've got uh, requests, uh, you know how to find us. Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast. Drop us a message. Drop us um, a DM on uh, Facebook or, or, you know, leave us a comment on any of those places. And uh, hopefully we'll find them. And and if you've got a request, we'll put you on the list and uh, hopefully get around to it sometime in the near future. Until next week, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. With two guys in a chainsaw. Wow.